thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's Good Friday episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you join me for today's episode, but I'm especially delighted to let you know that on May 13th, mark your calendar, May 13th, the Family Action Council of Tennessee and God, Law, and Liberty will be working with Chuck Knox and Jason Farley of the Knox Unplugged podcast to do a live event here in the Franklin area May 13th. It'll be from 9 until about noon on that Saturday. And it will be a ticketed event because we're going to limit the audience to 50 people because we want this to be more interactive than seminarish. So I will be part of the broadcast, Jason Farley, Chuck Knox, and George Grant. Many of you know Dr. George Grant, who pastors the church here in the Franklin area, uh, does a broadcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, uh, has the Stand Fast podcast, and he will be joining us. So it'll be the four of us for an event here on May 13th, Saturday. And if you are interested, because it's uh, limited spacing, send me an email and I will get it your place reserved to make sure you get the invitation once the website for it is set up. It may be set up by today, actually, uh, the day of this broadcast. But uh, send us an email at info at factn.org. That's info at factn.org, saying you'd like to reserve a spot for the Knox Unplugged live event here on May 13th, and we will get you the registration information. So looking forward to that. Uh, Chuck Knox, Jason Farley, me, and Dr. George Grant. So for today, on our Good Friday episode, I wanted to lay out uh, some of the events over the last two weeks here in Nashville. And and while the specifics, or some of them at least, are, are tied to Nashville, what is at their root has actually been replicated in, in many cities across the country. So this is not podcast that um, makes sense only for people in Tennessee. And if you find it helpful, uh, I would urge you and ask you to consider sharing it with some friends who might also benefit from what we will cover uh, this week and next week. It seems to me that a number of things are beginning to come to a head in our culture. And Nashville may have been that point of the spear or maybe the tipping point, I, I, I don't know. But it's imperative that we understand the nature of the conversation that's taking place around us for two reasons. One, in order that we can evaluate what other people in the conversation are saying, or perhaps what they're not saying but is latent or hidden in the words they actually use. And that's important for a second reason, in order that we might know how to engage in that conversation in a way that's true to the gospel and rests on hearts that are intent on making the glory of God the motive 
the means and the ends of their engagement in the conversation. In other words, to engage in a Romans 11:36 way, from him, through him, and to him, be all things to whom be glory forevermore. That's the goal that we should have as Christians. It should be our motivation, our means, and our end. And sometimes that gets lost, and we're going to look at that today. So, as you probably know, if you've been paying any attention to the news over the last week, Tuesday of last week, there was a young woman, transgender, thinks she's a man, who went into the school that she had attended for a period of time in her life, Covenant School here in Nashville, and uh, killed six people, three nine-year-olds. And, and what took place was terrible on multiple levels, but it spawned a few things, as happens with evil. It doesn't stay constrained or controlled that I also want us to take a look at. So that took place, I believe it was on a Tuesday, and then on Thursday of last week, really boisterous crowds, composed mostly of young people, gathered at the Tennessee Capitol and began to demand gun control. And and they urged it in such a way as to say, if we don't get action, you're not going to get any peace. So it had a militant tone to it. And you may have seen that three members of the Tennessee House of Representatives were in the chambers. They went up to the podium without being recognized by the speaker, which is what you're supposed to do under the rules, be recognized by the speaker in order to speak so that there's a proper decorum and orderliness to the procedures. And three of them went up to the main place, we call it the well, there down front of the chamber with a bullhorn and began joining in the chants that were taking place outside. Now, I've been in state politics 28 years, and as a senator, I was there 12 years, and I was involved in some pretty boisterous protesting things, a brick being thrown through a window in the Capitol, and people outside the Senate chamber doors late at night when we were in there meeting, banging on the doors, making demands on us, but I have never seen legislators begin to lead the chants in the chambers. And so now there's a big hubba-bubba because there have been resolutions filed to remove them, expel them from the body, and say this is, this is not tolerated. We will not allow people to do this and get away with it and think they can do it in the future and we're going to remove you. And they can have a special election and pick somebody else. Well, following that event on Tuesday at the school and Thursday at the Capitol, Biden released a Transgender Day of Visibility Resolution. We may look at that in a couple of weeks. It was really interesting what was said in there. But that was surrounded with a lot of violent rhetoric, with transgenders holding guns and saying, show up at the United States Supreme Court chambers and wear masks and bring guns and let them know we're serious and we're not going to take this and so on and so forth. And uh, some Christians then began to express concern about being or becoming targets of violence, and Ted Cruz wanted to know if the FBI was going to label the shooting a hate crime, or, you know, if that was only crimes against people based on their ethnicity or their sexual orientation. So it was just a contentious week, and I couldn't help but think back to the testimony we recently discussed given to the committee in a Tennessee house by a cleric that was in favor of transgenderism. And we talked about that, I think, last week. 
who spoke in the name of the God of inclusive and expansive love, Jesus Christ. And no sooner did I finish the little mini-series in which we looked at the transgender legislation and the testimony of the ACLU attorney and this cleric, then we had a popularizer, I guess you could say, of evolution, an atheist scientist who wrote The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins, get a lot of press coverage, at least on Fox, for saying that science was clear. There were just two sexes. And while we're not yet at the point in a culture where a majority are really ready to deny that there are two biological sexes, what caught me about his statement was his complaint that the talk about gender identity, in particular the protest against uh, Miss Rowling, who wrote the, the books on magicians and wizards, Harry Potter. And he, he said that was errant nonsense. <laughs> That's interesting. Here we have the man who spent a lifetime convincing us that all that exists is matter and there isn't and can't be any transcendent meaning or purpose to anything that he would now think it's errant nonsense that people would act on the basis of what he's been teaching them. That I can make myself into whatever I think I am and I'm something more than stuff. Professor Dawkins, thank you very much. You see, he has a worldview that produced it, but it's producing us something that he now doesn't agree with. And what he sh should have been called to was repentance. You unleashed this errant nonsense because your own view of reality is errant nonsense, so don't complain. Either live with it or repent. But what caught me a little by surprise was the reaction to it by evangelist Franklin Graham. I respect Mr. Graham. He's done a lot of great in our country and around the world. And he, and he said, while I don't normally agree with atheists, he said, on this issue, I agree with Dawkins 100%. Now, that was intriguing to me at several levels. As I explained in last week's podcast, transgenderism presents nothing new to the Christian community. It presents us with issues raised centuries ago by the Greeks and that the doctrine of the Trinity and creation ex nihilo, faithfully preached and worked out in culture, overcame. Remember, we talked last week about this question of is, is there any permanence to things or are things always in the process of change? Nominalism and realism, unity or differentiation, which is more fundamentally true. So transgenderism is actually a new packaging to old issues. It's seeking to answer the same issues that have been around for centuries. And the way we're going to get out of the mess is the same way we got out of the mess the first time. Embracing, speaking to, thinking in terms of the Trinity and creation ex nihilo. And repenting for the ways in which we failed to do so. And that's what brought me to the next intriguing aspect of this exchange between Dawkins and Graham, is because as the doctrine of the Trinity began to recede into the background of importance in the late 1700s with Friedrich Schleimacher, I've talked about him before, his book on the culture despisers of Christianity, and Darwin, who provided the mechanism needed to overcome the need for a creation ex nihilo that God creates. And Darwin comes along and publishes his book in 1859. 
Well, we, we should have seen in these things with the abolition of the doctrine of the Trinity or the, the de-emphasis on the Trinity and now the concept of all is in a process of change and flux that evolution propounds, we should have seen that transgenderism would come. Now you might say, well, David, gee, that's over 100, 200 years ago we should have seen it coming. That, that's crazy. How could we have such prescience, such foresight to, to predict that kind of thing? Well, if you've been listening to the, our podcasts over any period of time, you've heard me refer to Abraham Kuyper, who spoke to the seminarians in Princeton in 1898, and he spoke to this issue which is now, what, 125 years later? Here's what he said back then. Modernism, which is the idea there is no God, no transcendent, no trinity, no differentiation, says, denies and abolishes every difference, cannot rest until it has made woman man and man woman. Let me read that again. 1898. Modernism which is what we have today, we call it postmodernism, because at least modernism could embrace a pantheism, I guess. But modernism was the idea that, that man is all there is, and man's the measure of all things. And he says, modernism, which denies and abolishes every difference, cannot rest until it has made woman man and man woman. And putting every distinction on a common level kills life by placing it under the ban of uniformity. One type must answer for all. One uniform, one position, and one in the same development of life. And whatever goes beyond and above it is looked upon as an insult to the common consciousness. So as we discussed last week, this abolition of boundaries, which creation is, and the boundaries are, are created to conform with in the world that we live in, in the cosmos, to reflect the Trinity. He said, well, it produces a uniformity of non-differentiation, or put another way, a differentiation so broad as to no longer have any real differentiation. It's just one blob of stuff. And I can't help but think, as I thought about that, that if we had taken seriously, back in 1898, what Paul wrote in Colossians about the relation of the triune God and Christ in particular to creation in chapter 1 and taken seriously what he wrote in chapter 2 that it's in coming to the knowledge of and growing in the knowledge of the Father and the Son and the mystery that's there that we would find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are to be found in this life. If we'd taken those things seriously then we would have seen this Trinitarian heresy of transgenderism coming, even as Kuiper did almost 130 years ago. So doctrine matters. Creeds matter because they establish the boundaries and the lines for truth. And that's really what I want to focus on the rest of our time together today. And it goes back to what was said by Professor Dawkins and Mr. Graham. I believe we must absolutely understand the nature of the conversation that appeared to be taking place. Now I say appeared because I haven't spoken to Mr. Graham and all I have is what was reported. But let's take what was reported at face value 
and see if we can understand the nature of the conversation we're in with transgenderism and better understand how we need to speak to it and speak with precision. With respect to the exchange, I wrote a commentary um, published last week. If you want to read it, it's at factennessee.org. And I said, I agreed with Dr. Graham and Professor Dawkins that there are two biological sexes. But I said, I wish Graham had not made an additional statement, which was this, quote, science reflects what the Bible clearly says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Quoting, of course, from Genesis. Period, says Dr. Graham. That's it. I appreciate him taking a stand for this truth. Now, the point in my commentary, in view of the transgender movement, was I wish that Mr. Graham had not said anything beyond agreeing their two sexes. And I thought I was clear in what I wrote, and maybe I wasn't, that Christians should be careful not to imply in any way or suggest in any way that the image of God was strictly a matter of biology or that we agreed with Dawkins in any way as to how we arrive at our shared conclusion that there are only two sexes. See, we can reach the same conclusion. You may have done a math problem back in school and gotten the right answer and the teacher said, well, you had no idea what you were doing here as I see your work. You just lucked out into the right answer. So you don't understand mathematics even though you got the right answer. So we need to be very careful when somebody like Dawkins is speaking how we respond to them lest we imply something we don't believe nor want them to believe or anybody else to believe who hasn't thought more deeply than Mr. Dawkins has thought. So the problem, as I see it, is Christians, we need to really be clear about the nature of the conversation we're in with all this transgenderism. And we need to be clear that there's only one foundation that can be laid for everything that exists, and that's Jesus Christ. And any work built on any other foundation or not built properly on that foundation will have no enduring value or good, even if we are saved. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. So the Christian believes the meaning of male and female is not to be found strictly in their biology because they're revealing the glory of the triune God and, remember this, the course and purpose of history, the marriage supper of the Lamb that's talked about in Revelation chapter 9. That's where everything's going. So that's what I was trying to say in last week's episode. Male and female have an objective meaning rooted in an objective reality, who God is, that's unchanging because God never changes, and there can be no such thing as transgenderism. But sex is not all there is to what it means to be man and woman and be made in the image of God. Remember, I talked last week about the fact that the creation of the woman from the side of the man, from Adam, was mirroring the unity of the Trinity and the internal begottenness of the Son in relation to the Father. It's telling us something not apparent in biological sex alone. 
Mr. Dawkins' science can tell us there's two sexes, but he can't tell us anything about what their objective, ontological, essential meaning and nature is other than they're made for reproduction. But under Mr. Dawkins' worldview and cosmology, he can't even tell us that that has any intrinsic good other than the continuation of the species. And while that may have been sufficient at one time, well now we're creating babies in test tubes, in artificial wombs, and all kinds of things. And so Mr. Dawkins can't speak to why that would be wrong or bad. That you could bring children into the world without the act of copulation, which is the most intimate revealing of the unity and the oneness that's inherent in the Trinity. I mean, you know, it took me a long time to understand this, but sex was not intended for our pleasure. It was intended for the glory of God. Now, God is good, and so he made sex pleasurable. But that's an evidence of the goodness of God, which redounds to the glory of God, because everything's for the glory of God. And when we make sex primarily about our own pleasure, we're looking inward, not outward, and you wind up with a perversion of sex. And I don't mean perversion just in the sense of icky. I mean a perversion in that it is redirected or directed or understood or its meaning or its value, its purpose is turned in on itself rather than toward God. So we're never going to get to the root of what transgenderism is if we agree with Dawkins 100%. Because Dawkins' foundation produces a completely different understanding of the meaning and purpose of biology or what it means to be in the image of God. And we have to be careful when we associate the image of God with nothing more than mere biology. Now, when I called this to the attention of my readers last week, I got some reactions that were very interesting and they're important. And I want to take a look at one aspect of the response I got. And next week, we'll look at a second aspect of it. Because it's very important that we appreciate what we're saying when we either disagree with Mr. Graham, as I did, or somebody disagrees with me as, as a few people did. Now, here's what was said to me in response. One person said this, that at a time when Christian unity is needed more than ever, I shouldn't even hint at being critical of Mr. Graham, and I'm glad I've never supported your, your organization, and I'm glad I never read your commentaries, although apparently he read this one, or he read the start of it and didn't read it all the way through and just decided didn't like it, but, but anyway, it was about the importance of Christian unity and, and to quibble around with Mr. Graham breaks up unity at a time when it's really especially needed. And I got another email that was something similar that, that said, you know, when we can make alliances with people, even though they don't share our worldview and even though we know the truth goes much deeper than what they're saying, 
and, and actually Dawkins, is not even expressing a truth except on a very superficial level, a biological level. I said, we, we, we just need to join alliances where we can and, and, and overlook, you know, the, the different foundations on which we come to certain conclusions. Now, those are very, very important observations, and I took them very seriously, and I appreciate them. So I want to speak to just one of them today, and we'll look at the other thing that I think is being communicated next week. But the Bible does speak a lot to unity. In fact, the passage in 1 Corinthians about foundations and building on the foundation laid in Christ, it's written in the context of disunity. Some, you recall, it said were of Apollos, others of Peter, some of Paul, others of Christ. But Paul didn't tell them to just get along. He pointed to the truth that should unify them, Jesus Christ. But not any Jesus will do. I mean, we, we learned that lesson from the cleric who came and spoke in the name of the God of the inclusive and expansive love, Jesus Christ. It's the Jesus, as we've discussed, who is the one in whom the Father's plan of creation is formed and after which it was to be modeled, through whom it was to be initiated, and for whom it was to be formed and brought to pass as the Father's love gift to his Son. We've talked about that in previous episodes, and we see it in Romans 5.14, that Adam was a type of what was to come. In other words, what God was creating was created out of, in respect of, the Trinity and Jesus Christ. He was, in essence, the, the large-scale model of what the detail was to look like. So when we start speaking about the image of God, we must be careful about how we talk about it. And remember that we're actually ultimately talking about and pointing to, in man and woman, Jesus. So precision is necessary when we speak to this because creation is revealing the glory of God. Man and woman are revealing the glory of God and we cannot misrepresent or misreveal who God is. So this is serious business. It's not making mountains out of molehills. Consider also how the Apostle Paul confronted Peter in Antioch in front of both the Gentiles and the Jews. Certainly a kind of unity grounded in a get-along spirit and let's just all be peaceable, Rodney King kind of thing, wasn't the foremost thing in his mind. The disruption, and I'm sure embarrassment to Peter, was so important. Why? Because what was being smoothed over or, or in the smoothing over, even embraced or implied, was rooted in the belief that the laws of Moses still informed the distinction between God's people and the Gentiles. And those walls of division and separation had been broken down at Pentecost. And so Paul said, you are actually implying by what you're doing, Peter, a different gospel. That's how serious this is. And yes, I will not allow this to take place, even if it's fractious, even if it's embarrassing to you. Because I did it to his face in front of everybody. Because the gospel was at stake. And the gospel is at stake when we deny that the creation is revealing the glory of God and man and woman are the highest revelation of the glory of God. And it's not just about biology. You know, 
I've said this before, but one's view of God necessarily informs one's cosmology, which necessarily informs one's view of soteriology, questions of salvation. And finally, they inform one's view of eschatology. And that's because everything is of one piece in God's cosmos because it finds its unity in God. So unity, for the sake of unity, that's not driven by getting to the truth that should drive, inform, and sustain that unity, well, that's not biblical unity. And when we allow people like Dawkins to either deny or blur the essential distinctions between us and Christians, well, for me, that's a problem. We ought to be very careful what we say if we're going to join into the conversation and not, when we have a position of influence, imply something that somebody's liable to take as, as containing the whole of the truth. Twitter is not a platform for serious discussion of serious social issues. It's just not. Now, I want to close with one other little thought here. When we have so many Christians who consider transgenderism a moral issue, something we just need to stop, of, of wrong and right behavior, I think it's imperative that we realize we really need to speak to this at a deeper and more fundamental level. And I don't think we've been really doing that. In fact, our emphasis on behavior and not going to what's underneath it sure seems to me like what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Listen to what he said. Blind guides who strain at the net and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Now he's speaking there in a different context, but the principle still applies. If we don't address what is on the inside, what is underneath the surface of this transgender behavior that's just being manifested on the outside, well, then we're really, we're addressing the gnat and swallowing the camel. We spend so much of our time and energy swatting at the gnats, like transgenderism or whatever else it is, and thinking if we can just kill this gnat that we're going to be free of gnats, and that's not true to what the gospel is. It's not to say that law is unimportant. It's not to say that law is not a part of the conversation. And we're going to look at that next week and how we go about speaking to legal issues and talking to the law in ways that are gospel-oriented. And uh, that's what I want to cover next week, is how can we address this issue in the legal policy context in a way that is gospel-driven, gospel-oriented, and is not just swatting at the gnats while we allow people to keep swallowing the camel. And I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. 
That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FACTennessee.